text. Well, let's get back to John chapter 6. Thank you, Virginia, for reading it. And we've seen the feeding of the 5,000. But as I said last time, what does it mean? And that's where I think most of us are on less familiar ground. We've seen a bit already. We've seen the way it points to the identity of the Lord Jesus. But it doesn't stop there because we've got the whole of the rest of the chapter. And the explanation must be very important. 14 verses to tell the account of the feeding of the 5,000. 34 verses of bread of life explanation. That's what we're going to be spending the rest of the time looking at. Interestingly, the way the answer comes to us is in a dialogue. Um, It's Jesus answering people's questions. I don't know about you, but um, you, you might be more technologically minded than me, but whenever I get a book of instructions that come with some new gizmo, I can't bear reading it. Um, some of you probably enjoy that kind of thing. But it's just page after page in Serbo, Croat and Italian, eventually you get to the right bit. But I do like FAQs. I find those easier to just sort of grasp. And the way this account works is with people asking questions of the Lord Jesus and him giving them the answers, and that makes it a bit easier to, to track and follow what he's saying. Uh, there are three questions they ask him here. They're the three headings you got on the sheet, and then one request which they come to him with. The first question is, when did you get here? Actually, uh, although that's the way that the, uh, the account is, is packaged, um, that particular question gives you no clue at all as to what this point is going to be about. So I might give you a subheading, which is, Jesus offers something better than the world realises. Something far better than the world realises. So we pick up the story then in verse 22, the next day, and the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realised that only one boat had been there. Jesus hadn't entered it with his disciples, but they got away alone. And some boats in Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So it starts with a head-scratching moment. They saw that the disciples headed off the previous evening. They can't figure out where Jesus is. So they know he hasn't gone with them. Uh, And then when they they make the long walk around to the other side of the lake the next day, he's already there. How on earth did you do that? John wants us to realize that they haven't really got it fully about Jesus. Anyway, they come up to him. They're earnestly seeking him. It's not difficult to work out why. We know from what we saw that happened the previous day that they're wanting to make him king by force. Here's somebody who can feed them from nothing. He can provide all their, uh, uh, those sort of material needs. And they come after him. And Jesus certainly knows why they've come to find him. Verse 26, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now, when you first read that, you think, hang on, I thought they had seen a miraculous sign. What does he mean? The key word is sign. Um, The miracles in John's Gospels are always called signs because they're pointers to a particular reality. They've experienced having their tummies filled with the bread and fish on a vast scale. But they haven't come seeking what this is all about. They've simply come seeking more food. That's the point. Now, in a way, it's understandable. 
And interestingly enough, there are still plenty of people in the world today who still basically are seeking Jesus for that reason. Uh, You will have heard of aversion. Uh, uh, It's actually a a perversion of Christianity, which is sometimes called the, let's get some water, the prosperity gospel, where uh, the, the church or the preacher promises that if you trust in Jesus, you will be uh, prosperous, therefore well-fed and healthy, and have all kinds of uh, blessings like that. And in some parts of the world, that is very, very influential. People are basically seeking Jesus because they're promised that he is the answer to their material needs. But in fact, Jesus has something bigger and far better for them. He says, verse 27, Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. These people, in a sense, they're confused about Jesus. They've got some aspects of it. They've seen he's the prophet who's coming into the world. They haven't got the bigger picture. And being confused about his identity, they're still expecting him to give what the best of earthly kings can give. But he's got something much, much better. Now, when he says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, we need just to be clear what he's not saying. He's not saying, be spiritual and prefer spiritual things to material things. You'll know that some Eastern religions take that line. They take the view that basically our material, the material world is intrinsically evil and that uh, it's only what is spiritual which is good. So if you're going to be a really holy person, you need to be a person who uh, is basically ascetic and does without the normal comforts of life. We know Jesus can't be saying that because he's just materially fed 5,000 people. Here's another way we could misread that verse. We could say what Jesus is saying is don't be selfish. You see, a verse 27, don't work Uh, Verse 26, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Oh, you're being selfish. You ought to have higher things on your minds. Actually, he's not saying that at all. And in verse 27, well, the Bible never encourages selfishness, but it does call us to, it does appeal to our self-interest, doesn't it? Uh, I wouldn't be a Christian. If it weren't for self-interest, I've fled from the wrath to come. And you're a Christian today out of self-interest, I take it, because you realize that you want to come to the Savior to have your sins forgiven. Now here he's giving, the, he's, he's, he's not saying don't be selfish uh, and that kind of thing. He's saying I've got something much better and bigger and more important for you even than that. What he's doing here is he's comparing the, the perishing and the eternal the things that don't last, with the things that do. Now, if you're tempted to think that that's rather unimportant and ethereal, I advise you to wait a few years and look in the mirror. And uh, as life goes by, uh, it is a a cliche because so many people say it, but I've observed how quickly it goes by and how quickly suddenly lots of years have gone by and you get to the stage where you think, perhaps I will have 30 more years, God willing, on this, uh, on this earth, and then I will die. And so much around us perishes, doesn't it? 
our achievements, our looks, our wealth, even our names. I, I was... Uh, Uh, I realized at Christmas this year, I didn't think I'd realized it before, that I didn't know the names of my great-grandparents, all of them. I knew the names of some of them. Now, you may think that's a shocking thing, but I bet there are some of you here who don't know the names of all your great-grandparents. There are only eight of them. They're the people that your grandparents called, and you're now going to spend the rest of the talk trying to work it out. (laughs) Uh, They're the people that your grandparents called mum and dad. It's not a lot of names to learn, but how quickly life moves on. People wither and perish. It says that in Psalm 103, they're gone, and even their names are forgotten. So much around us perishes. That's the force of the book of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? That uh, there are so many great things, but everything is brought to an end by death, and it makes the world seem meaningless. And we long for somebody who has the answer to that. The vital question arises, is there anywhere where we can find solid joys and lasting treasures? Life which lasts, relationships which are not spoilt by death. And Jesus is claiming to give the answer to that. This little expression, eternal life. Which later on in John's Gospel, in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says he's knowing God. It's a relationship with God which starts now and goes on forever. Now he's not saying, when he says don't work for food that spoils, he's not saying go in on Monday morning and quit your job. Uh, We have to put bread on the table. And work, if we have work, uh, if we're in a fortunate position enough to have a job, uh, it's, uh, it's, it is fulfilling a vital need. What he is saying is don't make that your be-all and end-all. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. He's setting one against another. It's a manner of speech in which he's saying, don't do this in such a way that you lose sight of the priority of food that will last forever, which he says, the Son of Man will give you. And you don't need me to tell you that we're surrounded by people who on every side are simply investing everything in that which won't last. Even if it's wanting a good reputation, well, the people I enjoy a good reputation amongst will die. And bang goes my reputation, in a sense. There's so much we invest in which will be not lasting. Rachel and I, a while ago, went round... We've got, a, we've got membership of the National Trust. It's a very sort of middle-aged, middle-class thing to do. But uh, we've, um, we went round Kingston Lacey House in Dorset, which is a beautiful house. Um, and, and yet it's so sad. Uh, there was one old boy who lived in there at the end, and he accumulated all these paintings, which are everywhere. And you go down to the basement, and, and there's this one set, all these racks with these dusty bottles. And he never lived to drink them. Now, just tourists come past and gawp at them. And there they are, doing absolutely nothing. All that effort into those things, into something which he can't actually enjoy, and it'll be gone. And it's not wrong to have the natural desires in life, and it's not wrong to do a regular job, and it's not wrong to put bread on the table. But C.S. Lewis said somewhere, and one of you will find the quote, uh, that it's not that our desires themselves are necessarily wrong. We just settle for too little. And I think it's partly because we don't grasp the magnitude of what Jesus is offering here. He is claiming, in verse 27, to give food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man himself will give you. He is offering life forever. He's offering an answer to the problem of perishability and impermanence. 
And it's a note we need to sound out, I think, in our personal conversations, isn't it? As people put all their effort into things, it's all perishing. Ultimately, they know it's perishing. Think how much time people spend trying to keep ourselves looking young and healthy uh, down at the gym and all that kind of... And that's, you can see that I don't spend a great deal of time there, but it's, it's, uh, and that's a good thing. But it's, it's, in the end, not dealing with the fundamental issue. But Jesus can offer uh, something which endures, food which endures to eternal life. Well, that leads to the next question, verse 28. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? They assume there is something which they'll have to do to please God, to get him on their side. And he gives a very surprising answer in verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, that's surprising because, of course, our default psychological setting is, uh, uh, if I want to get something from God, I've got to do something to earn it. Uh, what was that song we sang at the beginning, that new song, which had about working your fingers to the bone? Uh, the idea of sort of doing everything you can to get God on your side. Uh, and you'll know that in Buddhism, uh, we're taught an eightfold path, which I gather is right aspirations, right speech, right conduct, right mode of living, right effort, right awareness, right concentration. Do those things, and eventually nirvana will be yours. Or in Islam, it's the five pillars of uh, wisdom to say the creed, uh, to pray five times a day, to fast in the ninth month of the Muslim year for Ramadan, uh, to give alms, and to go once in your lifetime to Mecca on the Hajj, the pilgrimage there. Do these things. And if you do them sufficiently and to a standard that God finds uh, acceptable, then you will get uh, heaven. You'll get to heaven and so on. Uh, Hinduism, two things, love your neighbor and pursue spiritual insight. And, of course, there are plenty of versions of Christianity that are essentially uh, works-based, perversions of Christianity. And, of course, our non-Christian friends, when we talk to them about Jesus, assume that we're wanting them to become religious and to get in some kind of works treadmill of uh, religious observance. But what Jesus says here is so wonderfully simple, isn't it? What are the works, they say? To do, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. It implies, he implies, that whatever needs to be done for us to please God has been done already. It is so gracious as well, isn't it? Just think about this. To offer a bunch of rogues eternal life freely, that's pretty big, isn't it? And that's what he's doing. The physical picture of it was the food which he gave out free of charge to all those different people who were there. And we're here at this point into the great theme of John's Gospel, which is an invitation to believe in Jesus and have life. The word believe comes 98 times in John's Gospel. It's a constant theme throughout his Gospel. And the point is that Jesus has done absolutely everything necessary for us to come to him. He provides the answers. I, I find it an absolute eye-opener when people first explain Christianity to me that it wasn't a question of me working to get God on my side, but what Jesus had done for me, coming to this world, dying on the cross, uh, rising from the dead. He did everything necessary. So the work of God is simply that, to believe in the one he sent. Well, then comes the next question. What sign will you give us? Uh, this is a fairly extraordinary question. Verse 30, what miraculous sign will you give us? Uh, that we may see it and believe you. What will you do? Uh, 
Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Uh, what they're saying is, um, you make a big claim, um, prove it, give us the evidence. And then they refer back to the great episode of Moses giving them the manna to eat in the desert uh, 1,400 years earlier. And it's as if they're saying, well, Moses did that, match that. Now, it's not unreasonable to ask for evidence for a claim like this, but welcome back to planet Earth. What has he just done? Uh, I mean, the 12 basketfuls were only collected the day before. They're probably still sitting in somebody's larder. Um, we know that these are the people who experienced the feeding of the 5,000 because they've come asking, they've come looking for more. But people are very obtuse, aren't they? They can experience something like this that's so great they want to make him king by force and then they say, what sign can you give us? J.C. Ryle, uh, commenting at this point, said, the only thing in his earthly ministry that Jesus is said to have marveled at in the Gospels was people's unbelief. And of course, it's helpful to see this because it's a reminder when my friends say to us, well, I'll believe in Jesus if he, uh, if he does a miracle of this sort or that sort. And you say, well, actually, these people saw Jesus do a miracle and they didn't believe in him. Uh, they were obtuse. It didn't, in fact, change their mind. Well, Jesus' answer, it comes in verse 32. He flags it up as very, very important by saying, uh, as he sometimes does when there's a very important moment coming up, I tell you the truth. Then he goes on to say, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He looks back to the manna in the desert, when, uh, about which they're saying, well, Moses did that, can you, can you match that? And he's saying, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't Moses anyway who gave you the manna. It was God, except he doesn't put it like that. He said, it was my father. It wasn't Moses, it was my father, the one with whom I have a special, unique relationship. And what's more, it is he who now gives you the true bread from heaven. Now look at that verse again, just to study. It's slightly puzzling because it seems to change tack halfway through. I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who, in a sense now, gives you, or the other way to render the Greek is, is giving you the true bread from heaven. Uh, uh, And... um, we look at that and think, well, now, what exactly is he talking about there when he talks about things in the present tense? My father's now doing this. Is he talking about what's just happened, uh, the feeding of the 5,000? Could be. Or is he talking about this food that he's offering, which a person may eat and live forever? Which of the two? Now, if you read through John's Gospel, you'll know that now and again, John loves... Uh, to do a double meaning, and I'm sure that's what's going on here. Both things are woven together. What's happening now, he's saying, is that my Father is giving you true bread from heaven. That's what you've seen happening uh, with this actual material food, and this is what he's now doing through me, Jesus is saying. I think that's very, very important, because he's saying this in answer to the question, what sign is that? that you can do this. And he's tying together the physical feeding with this claim. That's how the whole passage fits together. The sign that he can give us food that will last forever is what he's just done, miraculously, to feed all those 
people. This is something which happens from time to time in the Gospels with the, uh, with the miracles. All the miracles, all of them without exception, throughout the Gospels point to Jesus as Savior because every single one of them is never a random stunt. They are always meeting a particular need. They always start with a need which is met, always. Sometimes it's even more specific than that. It's making a particular point about his claim. So you remember in Mark's gospel, uh, there's that time when these uh, people bring their friend who's uh, quadriplegic, they make a hole in the roof and lower him down um, because they can't get in through the front door. And Jesus says, to everybody's surprise and shock, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders who are there uh, uh, are outraged because they think only God has authority to forgive sins. And of course, that's quite correct. But Jesus proves his authority to forgive sins, to do the invisible thing by giving this man physical healing and uh, up gets the man. Uh, And then come forward in John's gospel and Jesus' friend Lazarus has died and Jesus goes with with Lazarus' sisters and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he promises eternal life to everyone who trusts in him. Uh, words which are read out at every, uh, at every Christian funeral, rightly so. And we think, again, well, that, that's fine talk, but how do we know you can do that? Well, just a few verses later, he says to Lazarus, uh, come out of this tomb where he's been for four days, and out comes this bloke. Lazarus, come out, he says, and the man is uh, raised from death. You see, the miracle and the claim are put together. And that's certainly what's happening here. It's no accident that we have the feeding of the 5,000 and then this long section about the bread of life. The one is the evidence that he, uh, for the other, in a sense. We, we, we take him seriously when he claims to give us this food because of what he's just done. And uh, that's what is going to deliver this promise from the idea of it simply being wishful thinking, fine talk from Jesus, which doesn't have any reality. Well, they hear that, and in verse 34, they move from a question to a simple request. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. They really want to have it. And so he comes to the crunch verse of the whole section. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. It's one of the great I am claims of John's gospel. You remember he makes a number of others. I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the true vine. I'm the light of the world. uh, And so on. But here he says, I am the bread of life. And he promises complete, at a deep level, satisfaction uh, from uh, hunger and thirst to the one who comes to him. And by saying it's him, he's saying he's the one who provides it. And he's also saying he's the one we need to come to to receive it. Now, at this point, it's a great temptation for any preacher to go off on, a, to go off on one completely and talk at length about the, uh, the, the, the wonderful satisfaction the Lord Jesus provides us. Um, I'd like to, but actually he doesn't go into the details here. He simply makes the promise. If you ever want to cheer yourself up with the, some of the wonderful benefits that come from belonging to Jesus, remind yourself of that, go and read Ephesians 1. And there are plenty of other places we can find that. Except to say that here, if our biggest problem is 
separation from our maker, then our deepest needs are bound to be met by coming back to him. And that is what eternal life is. It's living in friendship, again, with our maker, our relationship restored, which is what Jesus came to do. You will know the famous quote from Augustine from many, many years ago, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, We have a sort of uh, men's breakfast Bible study at our church, and on Tuesday morning, um, just recently, we've been been going around the room and having different people tell the story of how they came to faith. And uh, a good friend of mine there, uh, uh, who was a Hindu, and came to put his trust in Jesus. Um, he was saying how uh, uh, friends, uh, various things in his life made him want to find out about Christianity. Friends took him along to church. And um, on the crunch day when he came to Christ, curiously enough, he, they were seeing that, sing, that hymn, Tell Out My Soul, The Greatness of the Lord. And they got to that line, Unnumbered blessings give my spirit voice. And he thought, I must have this for myself. And then he wanted to tell us that over 30 years later, he can look back on his time since, uh, since he'd come to know the Lord Jesus, and he found that to be absolutely true. And in my own experience, I've been going as a Christian for 35 years in God's goodness, and I think that's a reasonable length of time to try something out. And uh, I would say uh, that through all the ups and downs, Jesus has proved absolutely true to his word to give that deep uh, satisfaction Never go hungry and never be thirsty. Oh, yes, there have been plenty of trials and perplexities and difficulties and things along the way, but I've always known that the Saviour is there. And the crunch question then is, will we believe this? Interestingly, verse 36, he says, but as I told you, you've seen me and still you do not believe. I love his pastoral method. He won't simply leave us with a kind of, purple passage of, of something great. He actually wants to apply a person and say, well, you haven't actually crossed the line yet. You still don't believe. It's remarkable that they shouldn't believe because his offer is evidence-based, as we've seen. It's amazingly gracious. It's God offering everlasting life even to rogues and sinners. And it's very easy. It doesn't involve lots of hard work. It involves simply trusting in Jesus. But they don't, and he wants to focus the issue. Yet he goes on to say, verse 37, that the unbelief of some will not derail God's sovereign purposes. God will still call people to be his. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all he's given me, but raise them up. At the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He wants his hearers to know, and us to know today, that he's not making an idle promise. He's making a promise he can absolutely and will absolutely deliver on that as we trust him, he will absolutely safely see us to heaven. Uh, that we were presented uh, before him on the last day, uh, uh, raised up. And interestingly, he gives us some grounds for believing that. He says, and it's a slightly unusual argument for us, I think, to see in a sense. We we used to think, well, because Jesus loves me, he's bound to see me there uh, safe on the last day. And that is absolutely and wonderfully true. He gives a slightly different argument. He says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. In other words, he's, uh, he's come, in a sense, under orders from his father to do that. His, his desire is not to please himself, but to please his father. And the reason he's determined to keep you and me to that last day is in order to please his father. It's a very interesting idea. But actually, when you think about it, and it's not to be set in opposition to the fact that he loves us, when you think about it, it should give us real security. Jesus is committed to me because he's committed to the father. He will keep me through all the ups and downs because he wants to fulfill the mission which he's undertaken on his father's behalf. He's absolutely determined to do it. We had an embarrassing New Year's Eve because uh, we were going to see uh, my sisters and their families in, in London and um, uh, on, the, uh, on the north circular, the clutch and the car went and uh, we spent a number of hours at a place called Dog Lane in Neasden. I, apologies if you live there, but it wasn't where we were expecting to have New Year's <laughs> Eve. Uh, we were rescued by the AA and... Uh, the bloke who was a Romanian drove us back to Cambridge. So that was, that was our New Year's Eve celebrations on this low load of driving back to Cambridge with, uh, with a car on the back. And uh, it was New Year's, uh, the actual New Year came in Romania while we were on the road, you see, because they're an hour or two ahead of us. And I thought to myself, uh, I bet you wish you weren't here doing this job tonight. And I said, it's a tough night for you to come out. He said, yes. Who's doing it? Because he's a man under instruction and authority. And he wanted to please the company and do the right thing probably wanted to earn some overtime as well, but that was what he was doing. Now, the Lord Jesus is committed to keeping us till the end, absolutely, because he has come wanting to please his Father. It's an unusual, it's, it's an argument that we're not used to, but it's one he uses here, and he uses it to, for our encouragement. So we can be absolutely sure that on the last day, the one who fed the 5,000 will raise up all who've trusted in him. So we're getting a bit clearer now on the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a pointer to Jesus' identity. It's a lesson in discipleship, the uh, using what we have, that he will multiply. But most of all, here in John 6, it's a picture of a deeper nourishment that Jesus offers us. Not food that spoils and perishes, but food that endures to eternal life. It's a wonderful picture of something freely given. And he ties together the evidence that he can do it with the promises. He tells us he is the one who's able to offer this. He himself is the bread. Will we come to him for it? And if so, he will certainly raise us up on the last day. I've still got some unanswered questions. Here's the thing you can ponder between now and tomorrow when we'll come back to this passage, which is, why does he use the metaphor of food at all? So there's your homework. I know there's some other questions on the sheet. That's your homework. You could be thinking about that because he could just have forgotten about, he might have just not bothered with this metaphor of food, but there's something important which he'll explain in the second half of the passage. We'll come back to that tomorrow. But let's, let's pause now and pray and thank God for the Lord's teaching. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Thank you so much, Lord, for this bread that you are. And we pray that you'll make sure that each one of us in this room today does come to you and ask for this for ourselves.
Thank you for this amazing, gracious offer of eternal life, even to people like us. Thank you that we don't have to work for it, but you've done everything necessary. Thank you for the sign that you gave us in this great miracle to prove your authority to give this. And thank you that to those who put their trust in you, you make a promise of absolute security. We pray you'll help us to think about these things and to mull them over and to be encouraged by them in the days ahead. Amen.